HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Woohoo! All right, it is Thursday, one o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, you are listening to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. As always, we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are kicking off a two-part series exploring South Carolina, and we are honored to have as our first guest, kind of setting the stage and helping us uh, get a better understanding of the picture of ag in South Carolina, we want to welcome Commissioner Hugh Weathers uh, to the show. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Aaron. Well, it's lovely to have you on. So you are a third-generation dairy farmer, and you've been in your role as commissioner since 2004. So your family obviously has a, a long history with agriculture in the state. And then in your current position, obviously, you've got to see, um, you know, almost a decade now uh, under your belt in that role. So I'm excited to tuck in. I mean, South Carolina, can you give us a sense? What is what is the ag history there? What is the role that it plays in the state's economy? Well, we have a rich history in agriculture, but you're right. I, I came from a come from a dairy farm background, but uh, beyond that, uh, I live in a home that my great-grandfather, who was a big cotton farmer, uh, built on the farm. So uh, we go back uh, four or five generations right on the same property. Uh, now my nephew is back with us, so looking at uh, yet another generation. Uh, like others, we have diversified, but um and, and South Carolina agriculture over the decades and centuries has diversified as well. You know, we, I guess we cut our teeth in the, in the early years with, uh, you know, indigo and crops like that. And then obviously cotton came on, uh, as the, uh, the primary driver of, of farming in South Carolina, uh, in the 1800s. Then we moved into tobacco, uh, during the tobacco heyday. Uh, then we, 
have gravitated to where we really have just a diversified crop mix now. Um, tobacco has been sort of moved aside uh, to, to a great extent by new crops like peanuts. So uh, we've always been uh, really known as a little fruit and vegetable basket, uh, certainly not a, a grain basket like the Midwest. We're just uh, not not of that size. We don't have that type of uh, the fertile soil from, from one tip of the state to the other. Uh, South Carolina is the 40th largest state in the Union, so we're relatively small. Uh, but we are known for having a good, long-growing season. We probably average uh, eight months uh, from one end of the state to the other in a growing season, and we, we use, use it all. We use all of our uh, growing season to put a lot of crops on the table, uh, tables in South Carolina, tables on the East Coast. Uh, we come up uh, and work with a group in your area called the Eastern Produce Council, and we have worked with them for 40 years to help move South Carolina products into the uh, Northeast area, New York, uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and uh, just a real good working relationship. Nice. Well, it's interesting. I would like to kind of tuck into some of that diversification you were mentioning. Now, you're bordered on on the north by North Carolina, on the south by Georgia, and then um, on the east by by the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. By the Atlantic Ocean. So you, I, I have to imagine that there there's a variety of, of climates, even though the state is not huge geographically. I'm curious, um, you know, temperature wise and, and growing season wise, does it shift much as you move from county to county? Well, it does as you move away from the coast. Uh, we go to the foothills of, of the Appalachians at about 1,100 feet, 1,200 feet altitude. So you get some of those advantages of cooler nights uh, in the summertime for some of our crops. Then you move through the Piedmont area, uh, down in the lower elevations, moving away from the mountains. Then you move through what we, I call it the farm belt, but right through the the midlands of the old sand ridge. Some of the better soil in the state, some of the marginal soil in the state, right through uh, kind of a north-south Carter, through the uh, middle 60 miles of the state. Then we move toward the coast. And where I'm from is what we call the low country, where uh, you really have to look around to find a hill at all. And that's where our larger farms, uh, our grain operators will be located, uh, moving down toward the I-95, really straddling that. Then you move toward the coast, and for years, uh, the tomatoes on the islands dominated the coastal uh, farm production. But even now, it's diversified with... uh, some of our, our smaller farmers working together, working with the Charleston restaurants. Uh, Charleston is, is one of our nation's most visited cities, and a lot of it has to do around history and food. So we've got a great uh, partnership working with some of the Charleston restaurants for our local farmers down there, Hilton Head, Myrtle Beach. Uh, so again, South Carolina, as you said, for being relatively small, uh, it offers a lot of diversification from the mountains to the coast. Yeah, I have to say that's how I came to to have an interest in South Carolina was a, a trip to Charleston I took this past fall and being really introduced to uh, you know the cuisine of the region and a lot of the agriculture of the region through um, Robert over at Hominy Grill. So definitely want to give a shout out and a thank you to him for kind of 
being the inspiration for this series. Now, I'm curious, um, South Carolina is growing really quickly. I think you're currently the, the 13th fastest growing state in the U.S. And I'm wondering how that increase in population is impacting uh, farmland and, and how you know access to land um, has changed under your tenure and, and in the recent history. And if you what measures maybe are in place to, to preserve some of that land? Well, over a, a period of... Uh economic expansion for either retirements or uh, or second homes on the coastal areas, the mountain areas. Uh, we did lose quite a bit of land uh, from farming, let's say from the 1980s to early 2000s. We lost 30% of our cultivated acreage base either to uh, development or maybe forestry uh you know, land going into some reserve programs, marginal land into the forestry uh, reserves. Uh, but since that time, since uh, maybe 2000, uh, early 2000s, and maybe in conjunction with the recession, uh, we have had a stabilization of our farm acreage base. We're just under 5 million acres cultivated, but again, it has stabilized and perhaps even bumped up ever so slightly. Uh, not only with acreage, but with farmers. Uh, we we measure our number of, of farms by the U.S. statistics, and we've probably gained, you know, albeit some part-time farmers, uh, uh, you know, lifestyle farmers, I think we call them, uh, but we've gained a couple of thousand registered farms in the state, you know, over the last four or five years. So I'm very optimistic about what that means for the future, uh, you know, for agriculture, and again, the diversification uh, is is fascinating to me. Having come from chasing dairy cows my whole life as a youngster, and then in my early career, uh, and then you know, driving the combines, harvesting corn, and and things of that nature, and now to see just how many opportunities there are in agriculture in South Carolina, from you know, from thousands of acres operations to to twenty acres. 30 acres. Uh, just it, it's fascinating to me as commissioner the number of people and the number of ways that uh, careers are per, in, in production agriculture are, are available. Yeah, now it's interesting looking at, you know, the state's top 10 cash crops. I'll do a countdown here. At the top of the list, you have uh, broilers followed by turkeys um, and greenhouse or floriculture nursery crops, cotton cattle and calves, corn, chicken eggs, soybeans, wheat, and peaches. Now, I usually think Georgia when I think of peaches, but is that is that a rivalry? I know you yeah, share a border that's, that's there. Why that's why I'm happy to settle that score. Let me tell you about the old peach state. Uh, peaches came into Georgia, I'm thinking in the 1840s, and really made a, a gain in popularity and in production uh, because some of the areas of the state, just like South Carolina, have a soil that is just well suited for peach production. It's it's very sort of specific to that, and so they got a jump on us. So um, I guess uh, a good marketer, a promoter, way back when said, "Well, we'll we'll be the peach state." So that was all well and good. And then lo and behold, South Carolina, uh, probably in the late 1800s, early 1900s, discovers it has soil very very suitable for peach production as well. And on comes our peach production, and we passed Georgia uh, years ago, 
maybe because they moved away from peaches uh, into maybe the Vidalia onion, but that's not the area where they're grown. But uh, we we moved past them to where uh, our one of our counties, uh, Spartanburg County, right at the North Carolina border, for years there would be more peaches produced in Spartanburg County than in all of Georgia. Wow! Uh, so we have a we have a friendly rivalry with them. Uh, we work together. Uh, the, as I said, the East Coast, right up to uh, right up through your hometown of Brooklyn and Eubora, uh, the, the South Carolina peaches are very popular, as are Georgia's. So. Uh, we try to work together when we can, but nothing wrong with a little friendly rivalry. Sure. I think that like competition always makes things a little bit more exciting. Now, you know, you had mentioned earlier that, that tobacco used to definitely make this top 10 list. And I'm, I'm assuming, you know, there has just been a decrease in demand. And I'm curious, um, you know, farms that had been in, in tobacco production, I'm sure that also goes back generations. And can you talk a little bit about how people have been transitioning from one type of production into another, and maybe what are some of the positives of of starting off, or some of the struggles that people find making those changes? Well, that's that's a great story uh, as well. As you know, the the government used to have a what we'll just say the tobacco program, and it was quite involved uh, uh, government in, uh, marketing efforts on behalf and with farmers. So that. Uh, Given the the attention brought to cigarettes and the market demand, that went by the wayside um, ten years, eight to ten years ago. And in transitioning, uh, farmers in that region of the, of the state, we call it the PD area, very big uh, uh, far in the farming production agriculture, they have adapted to other crops. But one of the stars is peanuts. Uh, ten years ago, uh, we probably only grew as a state, 10,000 acres of peanuts. Uh, for this past year's production, we had grown by tenfold and uh, produced over 100,000 acres of peanuts. And what we produce is the, the roasting peanut. When you go to a Yankees game or a Mets game or wherever and get a, buy a bag of peanuts still in shell, that's, a, that's the type of peanut that we uh, specialize in in South Carolina. And then your your smaller peanut, Georgia, again, is quite dominant in that. That's the peanut that goes into manufacturing of, of a whole host of food products. So peanuts are a great, uh, great part of this transition that we were talking about earlier with South Carolina agriculture. Now, that's interesting. I know this state is working on a lot of different, um, you know, working with a lot of different agribusinesses and companies to expand or establish operations in, in South Carolina. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit uh, about some of those businesses that the state has recognized and is, is supporting their work or, or investing them, in them. Well, that's a, a, a great point. We have an initiative. That we, a few years back, we measured what the economic impact is of agribusiness, agriculture, and forestry combined. What, How many dollars do we generate for our economy of the state? And that was measured to be $34 billion. Now, that's small compared to even Georgia, North Carolina, and New York for sure, but it's about 20% or better of South Carolina's economy. Now, here's, here's why I bring that up as background. We said, well, if we're at $34 billion dollars, uh, in 2009, then what can we do as a state, as a Department of Agriculture, uh, to make that number? Can we 
grow it to $50 billion of economic impact by the year 2020. So we call it 50 by 20. Now, a part of doing that is finding where our areas of opportunity are. And one of those is to have companies who are food-based, food manufacturing, uh, processing, or taking a raw food ingredient and and producing a a value-added product. So we're working with our State Department of Commerce, and we have a specialist on staff at Commerce that he looks for and recruits uh, the businesses who are looking to relocate or add a new facility or start something new. We want them to look at South Carolina not only for our very friendly business climate of uh, low tax rates, very uh, hopefully not too rigorous regulations, uh, right to work, those types of things. But we want to expand that and remind them that with in South Carolina, we should be able to supply you with, you know, a number of your products uh, that you need. And I'll give you one example is Heinz Foods, recently located in the Florence area. So we're trying to work with them to say, what are you bringing in? Uh, what can we supply? And how does it add to the, to the economic growth for farmers? Just last night, Governor Haley had her State of the State speech, and she honored one of our best farm families, and that's McCall Farms. And they are canner. And what they do is can. They started off with peaches and, and, and all other products, and now they, uh, they're expanding. Added 80 more jobs. But what they tell me is that with this expansion, they will need 2,000 more acres of inputs. So... There's another market right under our nose for 2,000 more acres of specialty crops, some of our higher-valued uh, crops, uh, uh, the greens or the, uh, the uh, products that they use, not your commodities. So as we can grow our own companies or we can attract new companies to South Carolina, then it bodes well for the farmers who can uh, see that as a new market opportunity. Yeah, well, we are just about a... Out of time, we're going to be um, chatting with Dana Beach of the Coastal Conservation League in the second segment of the show. But before we let you go, I wondered if you could tell us a, a little bit about one other program that, that I think is super interesting that you guys are working on, which is the, the Fresh on the Menu. Yeah, uh, Dana's a good friend of mine. He won't mind if we just cancel him. Just <laughs> tell him I ran over and, you know, maybe give him three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You could tell him I said so. I no, sure will. Uh, Fresh on the Menu is a great, you're in Charleston, so maybe you saw it firsthand, but it's a program where we partner with uh, the restaurants who will agree to get uh, 25% of their menu items from South Carolina, products that we grow. And if they'll do that, then we will add them to our list of restaurants that we promote and we will tell the public either through print material that we use, billboards, those types of things. And we're just about to try to get into the app business and, and develop an app that if you, next time you're in Charleston, and I hope that's this year, you could uh, probably get a QR code, download an app, and you, you, you tell it where you are and it would tell you what restaurants in that area are supporting the local farmers through the Fresh on the Menu program, and really just make it easy for someone to get a great meal, support the local economy, 
support the local farmer, and not have to go through a, a lot of uh, effort in order to do that. So we're very excited about taking it to the next level uh, with the fresh on the menu, and then we have fresh on the campus where we're trying to do similar with our schools and hospitals and uh, things of that nature. So our whole efforts are to try to bring farmers and consumers closer together. Well, Commissioner, thank you so much for being a guest with us today and, and to sharing some of the exciting stuff and some of the history of your region. We look forward to continuing the conversation uh, over the next week or two and learning more and more. So thanks so much for joining. Uh, hang tight. After the break, we'll be back on the line with Dana Beach. Of He's the executive director of the Coastal Conservation League, and we'll talk a little bit more about this region of South Carolina. This is the Knife Show remix of Before the Night is Through on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. We all know what a foodie is, but what's foodiness? Foodiness is turning us into those chubby, slushy, slurping, lounge chair-bound morons in Wally, plugged in, pumped full of sugar, and brain dead. Chef Erica Wides is here to fight against foodiness. You have to keep drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid for it to start to work. Let's Get Real. Rediscover real food every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we are back. You have tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report as we kick off our two-part series on South Carolina. We are on the line with Dana Beach, Executive Director of the Coastal Conservation League. Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. I'm happy to be on it. Well, I'm happy, too. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I think Commissioner Weathers was going to try and go the, whole, go the whole distance for you. He said uh, you wouldn't well, mind, though. he does though. a good job. <laughs> yeah, he does a great job. So, 
Um, you know, we were able to get a little bit of a sense of the the state and, and some of the recent kind of trends and, and support uh things that were in place at, at the state level. And I was hoping you could help round out this conversation, but I thought we would start by getting a better sense of the role that the Coastal, Con Coastal Conservation League plays in the South Carolina region. Uh, well, we were we are 25 years old, and when we were founded in, in 89, uh, there was a lot of concern about the conversion of this beautiful, mostly rural landscape to um, development, resort development, urban development. Um, at the time, Hilton Head had been on on go for 20 years, Kiowa, Seabrook, Myrtle Beach, and there, there was very little, uh, I guess, comfort that there would be, that, that we would not eventually develop the entire coast of South Carolina. It just seemed inevitable at the time. And um, so we were, our first sort of foremost goal was to stabilize the rural landscape, the wildlife habitat, the farms and forests that are so characteristic of the low country of South Carolina. And we and we started by doing it in a number of ways. You know, the most most people think about land use planning as zoning. They think, well that's what you do when you, you protect land, you zone it. But really uh, infrastructure policy is even more important, and where roads are built, where they aren't built, where sewer and line, water lines are laid, um, is is critically important. And what we were seeing in the Low Country is because of such a poor job of planning, the um, land conversion rate actually was six times the population growth rate. So not only were we growing fast as a as a population, but we were wasting land six times that fast, and if we projected that not really very far into the future, it did not look uh, at all promising for the protection of these historic and ecological landscapes. Now, so I just we spent just a, a lot of time uh, with local governments, with the state, developing a land conservation program, funding for land conservation, better zoning, and, and we've been opposing a number of particularly ill informed um, road extensions. So just, just to clarify for, for listeners who might, might not kind of understand that, what do you mean when you say wasting land? Like what, what, does that, what does that look like on the ground? How would I know it when I saw it? Well, if you, I mean, what we saw, and this is sort of the thing that everybody reacted to and negatively in the 70s, 80s, we, we just saw this dramatic uh, expansion of our urban areas, strip malls, uh, suburban development, just going out into the countryside, consuming these heritage landscapes, and uh, it was the sort of thing like sprawl. People don't really have a clear definition, but they know it when they see it, and what we saw was what we knew was really the wrong way to grow. Uh, we were, and by wasting, and I mean, I guess you could say specifically what we were we were doing was using a lot more land per capita every decade than we had the decade before. We were accelerating the conversion of land, and ultimately, the end point of all that would have been the loss of this uh, of this the culture and the character of this region. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things we we talk a lot here on the network with the uh, American Farmland Trust, and they you know they always bring up the point that once you you know you want to pave over the land, like no one's 
no one's chopping down, you know, strip malls to put up farms. And so there's a real drive to prevent that development. And one of the other areas of your organization that um, I, I find so interesting is you're kind of taking up a real social justice perspective with regards to annexation reform and some of your programming. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that work. Well, you know, we, we have a saying these days that it's all one big project, and the social justice component of, of what we do is, is a function of the fact that this, this area is a very old historic area. It's one of the first uh, settled by Europeans in the, you know, 1500s, 1600s, but uh, it is a human landscape, and part of that human landscape is the um, vestige of the slavery era of slavery, we have a very rich and, and fascinating Gullah Geechee culture here that remains uh, as, a, uh, as a sort of a, the continuation of the African culture that came over here during slavery. So the idea that we're, we're sort of all working for everyone here, I guess, and the point is part of that is to preserve the culture of the unique cultures. And, and I think most people would agree one of the most fascinating ones is the Gullah culture, the, the, the black uh, settlements that emerged after, uh, after the Civil War, and also they were quite agricultural in their orientation. You know, they were, um, the, the, the Africans built this economy during the 17 and 1800s. The wealth of Charleston was built around the rice culture. We grew more rice than anywhere else in the world. In fact, the Santee Delta was the epicenter of rice production in the world. And so, uh, and that was, of course, a function of African laborers who were, um, creating these rice fields out of, out of cypress swamps, these vast, uh, almost impenetrable cypress swamps. So when we work to preserve communities and land, we are working with, in many, almost every case, we work with the communities that are there, the Gullah communities and the white communities. Wow. So that's so interesting. I was definitely not expecting uh, to, to go in that direction. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your your work with, with food and with agriculture production and as an organization, I mean, you guys have been around for a couple of decades now. Was it always apparent that you would have, uh, that the food pl- would play such a large role in your work? And I'm curious, you know, over the la- course of the last decade, there's been this in- increased interest in, you know, regionally sourced food, local food, and and uh, consumer willingness to uh, protect, promote, purchase, those types of things. And how has that, how has your programming around food shifted and what are some of like the new opportunities you're seeing in the in this re- most recent decade? Well, we I wasn't I, I didn't know anything about food. I was a, a a child of parents who were raising children in the fifties who who at that point thought the best thing in the world was canned uh, vegetables and frozen vegetables. And I I'd never even had a fresh asparagus until the probably I was almost twenty. We thought they were all limp and sort of salty. But um, what we found out as we began to work on land conservation, and, and this is sort of obvious, but it took us, I guess, a while to come directly to this point programmatically, was that better zoning, preservation of these landscapes, the conservation easements being purchased or donated on these, on these farms and forest lands, 
all had underneath this the implication that there was an economic use for that land. There, it wasn't enough just to say we're going to protect it forever, but there had to be some kind of economic production. And uh, especially once the first tier of, of conservation easements were donated, in many cases by very wealthy landowners who didn't worry as much about income per acre, the next phase of this work really was moving into more of a sort of community land conservation initiative, which meant a community economy. And so we we decided to and take on the Sustainable Agriculture Initiative, and at the time, we this is in the middle of, well, not about 2005, we really weren't sure exactly what that meant. But the more analysis we did, the, the clearer it became that the single biggest missing link was a distribution system that was available to smaller-scale local farmers to distribute locally to restaurants, grocery stores, and institutions. And fortunately, we had a, a donor who was passionate about that, that work, and he supported our purchase of a warehouse just up the road from where we are now and from the restaurant district, if people know Charleston, East Bay, King Street, it's literally less than a mile away. Um, and we purchased it, we upfitted it, and we created Grow Food Carolina. And what we've been doing with that is last year, first year, we sold over a quarter million dollars worth of vegetables, local vegetables, and the vast majority of that income going directly back to farmers. So we are excited about it. And like I say, this came, I came to this perspective as a bird watcher, not an eater. And I'm now a bona fide you know, excited eater. I'm excited about the food, the, the food culture, and the and and new food systems. And South Carolina is the perfect place to create a local food system. We have a as as uh, Hugh Weather said, we've got a 12 month growing season. We have good food, good soils, and we have good farmers. And we also have a very substantial metropolitan market that can link to these rural areas that in many cases are still quite poor. So it's really the perfect setting to, to, to build in a new type of, of agriculture that is really an old type of agriculture. That's exciting. We're going to um, actually be speaking with Sarah Clough of Grow Food Carolina next week and then also some producers who have benefited from the program. So I look forward to unpacking that a little bit more and learning about them. Now, beef, we are just about out of time, but the Coastal Conservation League, like the Heritage Radio Network, is a, is a membership-based nonprofit. And I'm curious if people want to learn more about your work or support you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, we've got a website, and it's this is hard to remember because it's got three C's in it: S C C C L S Triple C L dot org, or just Google Coastal Conservation League. Um, and uh, we love people to join. We also like people to sign up for our activist network. We're always fighting something bad, and we're pushing good stuff, we think. But at the moment, we've got a great opportunity to reform the state's transportation policies. And the reason that's critically important for agriculture is that the intrusion of poorly planned, you know, unnecessary urban road infrastructure into our rural areas is one of the greatest threats that we face uh, in sustaining our agricultural economy. 
Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. And I encourage folks to check out your work and, and learn more about ways to engage in agriculture. It's not always, you know, popping out to a farm and, and volunteering. There's a need for a, a really diverse set of skills and, and advocacy efforts. Stay tuned. Um, next week, we'll be uh, on the line with Sarah Clow of Grow Food Carolina. We're also going to be chatting with um, Matt Setter. Of, uh, he's the produce manager at Earth Fair over in Charleston. And then Jam Pack Show, we've got Carolyn Ben Williams of Milgrom Farm. So like all of our programs, if you miss a live episode, you can find us archived on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We're also available as a free download through iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll consider supporting us by visiting the website and clicking that donate button. We'd love to count you as a member. And hope to see you next week, Thursday at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Once again, you've tuned into another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Liz Carollo, and we are excited to tuck into our uh, winter exploration of the, of the green markets. Liz, welcome to the show. Hey, Erin. Thanks so much. So today you're going to take us on a little uh, uh, trip through some new processing methods that you're seeing at the market and, and talk a little bit about some season extension. So let's jump right in. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, what I've been noticing and seeking out these last few weeks is really just a little tiny taste of summer if I can get it. So dreary outside, you know, so I've been um, on the hunt for some color. Um, but let me back up a bit first and talk a little bit about the evolution of the markets, um, especially over the last 10 years. So our farmers have done a really incredible job diversifying their farms, and the progression usually happens in a way that if a farm is orchard fruit primarily or vegetables primarily, um, they get the hang of that and get down, and, and their customers can kind of start to ask for maybe some new products or they want to explore growing other things, so they start to incorporate um, maybe some chickens for eggs or some meat birds, some bigger livestock animals, or they might do some on-farm baking with their excess fruits and vegetables, which they can generally do right on the farm um, if they're eligible for exemption from a 20C license, which just essentially makes their, them you know, have a certified kitchen. Um, and they're, they're exempt um, from applying for that license if they're producing anything that's not a high risk. So like canned tomatoes have a high pH, so they would be considered high risk. And baked goods like quiche or something that has eggs in it needs to be refrigerated, that would be high risk. But if they just want to make, you know, fruit jams, bread, scones, muffins, pies, they can generally do that on the farm and then sell it at farmer's markets. 
Um, and another form of processing, and the one I want to discuss mostly today, is used primarily to extend the season and provide more variety on the farm stands, especially during the colder months, and that's freezing the summer harvest. So with the help of co-packers and off-site processing facilities, our producers take excess summer produce, have it blanched and flash frozen for selling in the winter, and it's exact. It, you know, is it exactly like the product you'd find at the farm stands in August? It's pretty close, and it tastes a ton better than anything you'd find at the grocery store right now. I bought some frozen green beans from Miglarelli Farm yesterday, um, had them for dinner last night, and honestly, I don't think I would have been able to tell the difference in a blind taste test. They were great. Wow, that's exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm curious, I'm assuming that the the access to this type of, you know, quick freeze technology and packaging is probably the result of a lot of different people's work providing that infrastructure. So it's exciting to see that happening. What, um, you know, what are the types of, of vegetables and fruits that we should look for and where? Great. Yeah. So uh, we have 22 year round markets, which we've been talking up lately. And, um, such a wide variety of our producers bring in frozen fruits and vegetables now, so you can really find them at most markets. Um, and I'm going to name some farms right now that a lot of people have heard of. Some mascot orchards, they're an orchard and veg farm from Columbia County. They have all kinds of frozen berries. Miglarelli Farm is a huge farm in Dutchess County, and they so they go to a lot of our markets, and they have frozen blueberries, kale, um, rapini or broccoli rob, corn, green and flat beans, and Brussels sprouts. So I saw they have... Um, you have to kind of seek it out when you're in their stand because most, you know, it's in coolers because it's staying frozen. So um, you have to, you have to, you have to get into the stands and kind of start to look around. Um, Morgenthau, an orchard in Dutchess County, has frozen fruit. Bradley Farm, Ray Bradley is a, is a favorite amongst green market customers. Um, he has frozen squash puree, frozen tomato puree, frozen cranberry beans, and Kira Kenny, another favorite out there, is a vegetable farm in Ulster County, and she has frozen tomatoes, and frozen tomato sauce and paste. So um, amongst all those producers, they're, they're kind of covering the gamut of all of our markets. And was there, was there someone in particular who kind of led the charge in, in this direction, or uh, was there a business in particular that was kind of the first to provide some of these services? Yeah, so when um, farm-to-table, so they're a co-packer and packaging facility up in Kingston, and June, who you know is our farm inspector and does strategic development for Green Market, uh, two or three years ago, she was spending almost all of her time on, on this topic specifically, so helping find the connection between growers and processors and trying to rebuild some of that lost infrastructure that we have had in New York State in the past and um, trying to kind of reinvigorate it. And there's certainly a demand. I mean, I Farm to Table is busy all the time. They're producing um, a lot for our for our farmers, and our farmers can just pull up to their loading dock, drop off whatever they have a bumper crop of that year, excess of anything, and then pick up. Um, they process it on site, and then they pick up jams, pickles, hot sauce, salsa, tomato sauce, the frozen fruit and veg. So, so they've been integral in um, in helping this product get to market. Awesome. And I'm, I'm excited to follow, you know, June's work with the grain, the grain production this year. And I'm sure a couple of years from now, we'll be having similar conversations about uh, even more awesome grain stuff. But I was wondering with the frozen vegetables, is there anything people should keep in mind with regards to cooking techniques or, or do differently because they're working with the frozen products? Yeah, I don't think so. You can do any and everything with them. There's so much variety out there um, with the frozen fruit and veg from the summer harvest, so it's still really high quality, um, 
they're flash freezing everything after blanching it. So it has a bright color. Um, it's maintaining a lot of the same taste qualities. And, I mean, I just cooked my green beans in a little bit of salt and olive oil, which is pretty much how I cook everything. So you just close your eyes and, and dream of those long summer days. <laughs> I have definitely been doing that. Um, well, speaking of like looking forward and planning for the future, I would love to hear a little bit more about the Food Almanac 2013, an event that's coming up that I, I think you guys are going to be a part of. Yeah, it's great. So it's going to be next Wednesday. Michael Hurwitz, the Green Market Director, is sitting on the panel. Leonard Lopate is moderating. Um, it's at the Brooklyn Winery in Williamsburg. It's going to be a really nice event. So much is happening in food and farming right now with the, the farm bill and GMOs and fracking and labor issues. And I'm sure they're going to um, – it's a really nice lineup of panelists, and I'm sure they're going to tackle all of those things. And um, and of course, I think always the best part is the Q&A from the audience and hearing what people are interested um, and knowing more about and kind of, uh, you know, hashing through some of that, that stuff that's coming up. Yeah, excited to see all those kind of food movers and shakers from Green Market and Wholesome Wave to Eagle Street kind of in one spot where there'll also be food. And, and I'm assuming in the winery that you'll be able to rustle up some wine some way, <laughs> even if it's just a take home. Um, well, to, to stay in touch uh, with the Grow NYC and all of the events, definitely visit them at www.grownyc.org. Tons of information there about cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, volunteering, and you know even what's happening in your local green market. And for the latest and greatest, make sure to tune in every Thursday for the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.